All right, welcome to the White Collar Crimes Podcast. I am Ryan Horn, your host. So glad to have you aboard as always. This one to this episode is going to touch a little bit on a subject area that I'm kind of familiar with myself, a little bit of involvement in the entertainment industry, and somewhere not terribly far from my neighborhood either. It's in the state next door. And I got this idea from one of our listeners, and more on that in a second, but I am always glad to get ideas like that. But this is a story that, despite being a really big, large amount of money and a huge Ponzi scheme in in the entertainment industry at that, which is very rare, we certainly don't think of Hollywood as ground zero for a Ponzi scheme, but that's exactly what's happened here. But this is the case, and some of you probably in the Midwest maybe have heard about it, but I don't think outside of the Midwest or Hollywood it got a whole lot of attention, but that is the case of Zachary Joseph Horowitz. And got this idea from Adam, one of our listeners. Thank you so much for the idea on this. And as I've said always, you can email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com if you want to be on the show, or in this case, like here, when you have an idea for the show, you can contact me by that as well. And we always appreciate that. We've had listeners as guests, and we've had them send ideas, and we're always appreciative of both. But not a whole lot's known about Horowitz's background, but he is from Fort Wayne. And I'm sure those of you that are listening up in that area remember this case, because As I said, it is a big deal. It was considered the biggest Ponzi scheme in Hollywood history. Now, we've talked about it over and over. We've even done a podcast on Charles Ponzi. He's the one that is named for that scheme, and it's it's a simple concept, really. You just take the money from the investors. You don't invest it. You put it for yourself and live high on the hog. And as long as you have new investors coming in, you can still take some of their money and give it to the old investors as their dividends or returns or whatever. But the problem is, once you run out of new investors and the investors you have want their money up and you run out of the money to give up, then your scheme goes belly up. And that's the end of it. That is a Ponzi scheme. It is one of the most common and repeated forms of white-collar crimes that are out there. Now, Like I said, Wall Street's somewhere you would generally think of a white-collar crime, not Hollywood, especially when you think of one at this magnitude, $650 million, folks. That is almost three-quarters of a billion dollars. Now, of course, we've done the Madoff case and some of the other ones, but most of them we've done, I would dare say, are not really in this neighborhood. We have done some that are on this podcast, but this is, as far as dollar amount, one of the bigger ones that we've had. Not the biggest, as I said, but certainly up there. As I said, not a whole lot is known from Zachary Horowitz's background, but he is from Fort Wayne. But he eventually moved to Hollywood to pursue his acting dreams. And that takes guts for anybody to do. I I worked a little on the side in the entertainment industry. In fact, I was in a movie that was filmed in uh, central Illinois about two months ago. Should be out at the end of the year or maybe early part of next year. And it was a movie, uh, American Criminals, about the Leopold and Loeb case. I'll have more on that later, but I know how tough it is, and this is a business at any time, 90% of the people out there are unemployed, 
And I've been thankful to get a little work on the side in voiceover. As I always say, you check out my website, ryan-horn.com. And if you like the sound of my voice, why, by all means, hire me for your next project. I would be more than glad to do it. You can, again, check out ryan-horn.com. Email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com to uh, find out more about that. But I know it's a tough business to crack into for anybody. And at any time... 90% of people in the entertainment industry are unemployed. They're not, we tend to think of just the big blockbuster movies we see, that that's everybody in the entertainment industry, but that's far from the truth. I believe I read the other day, the average SAG-AFTRA actor, this is the union folks, make about 26 grand a year is average, so very few people are getting rich. That is a very small percentage of people in the entertainment industry that are. So it's a gamble to try to make it in that industry, but he did move from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Hollywood to pursue that dream. So some say when you can't make it, you know, create your own job, and in a sense that's what he did, only not legally. Horowitz discovered that image and perception are everything, especially in Hollywood. In fact, that's just about all there is. And it's not really who you are, it's how you are perceived. And he picked up on that very quickly. And when you can sell yourself as a success, others will buy in as well a lot of times, even if it may not be true. And in this case, you'll find out in just a little bit, it wasn't. But I am proud to say that we are going to make this happen tonight, this episode. Also, in addition to having contact from one of our listeners, we have a brand new sponsor on the show. If you enjoy outdoors and fishing like I do, please check out The Weekend Angler, his YouTube page, great catfish fisherman and just all-around good fisherman in a lot of ways and we are proud to have him aboard as a sponsor of this podcast so again check out the weekend angler on the youtube as i said image is everything in this industry and when you sell yourself as a success even if you're not people may buy into it you're not muhammad ali even said that if you're not the best pretend you're the best and that's you know fake it till you make it kind of a philosophy I guess and that's what Horowitz did as we'll see in a little bit but the difference between Horowitz that we'll find in this case compared to other white collar criminals is Horowitz scammed a lot of his friends and associates where a lot of the people we've dealt with like your Jordan Belfort and your Madoff and tons of other ones we've done here I'd say the overwhelming majority of the white collar criminals that we've covered here do not know their victims and that's one of the very impersonal things about white collar crime pointed that out very early in this podcast whereas street crime a lot of times the victims may know their or the assailants may know their victims white collar crime is a little different oftentimes they don't but that is the difference between Horowitz and a lot of the other white collar criminals we've covered on this podcast in that he ripped off a lot of his friends and associates we'll see he knew his victims So how did Horowitz raise $650 million, you ask? Well, Horowitz would release, or he would pitch a movie, give the idea to the investors. Now, he would claim that HBO and Netflix were going to distribute this film. Right away, those are two big heavy hitters in the entertainment industry, so that is going to get an investor's attention right out of the gate. If you have a chance to be part of something that's going to be distributed on these platforms, you're probably going to be wanting to get on board, and that's how he sold things. 
Now, distribution is vital as any film that may not even get off the ground without solid distribution. Sometimes it takes a while for some of them to get out. Some of them never make it past a few other streaming platforms or maybe some film festivals and things like that. Getting... It's vital to get that. So, once Horowitz secured the money, he would pitch the idea to other investors. He would state he had raised X amount of dollars, say $25 million so far, but you know what? It's going to take about $60 million to get this off the ground. So, he would go to another investor and say, you know, I just need this extra $35 million or whatever to help launch this off the ground and get this distributed, get the money from that investor. And that would be okay if he actually intended and did take their money and invest it and actually distribute and release these movies. But you know what? That didn't happen. He had no intention of ever releasing any of these movies. Now, how did he get people to fork over that kind of money? Well, we already mentioned that he was willing to use Netflix and HBO, but... He also branded himself an industry player and somehow convinced multiple investors to get on board. Again, image is everything, and he at least sold himself as a success, even though he really wasn't. But as I said, once he took their money, he had no film to actually distribute the film of any kind to ever get out there. And in reality, he wasn't a big-time industry player. In fact... Most of you, I'm sure, had never heard of him because, in reality, he was only a small role actor who had small screen parts in some various horror movies, which they said he was mostly billed as Zach Avery. So, how did a small actor convince Hollywood investors of his clout? Because that's something that I would be wondering right now, and I'm sure that's something that you are wondering right now. He forged HBO and Netflix film contracts to scam the investors. Show them, hey, see, I've got them on board. They've signed off to help us fund this film, get it off the ground, get it distributed. You'll make your money back tenfold, whatever, because promising great returns, that's always part of a Ponzi scheme. And if you're wanting to invest in a film and you've got a guy showing a contract that looks legit, you think it's legit, that he's going to distribute to Netflix and HBO, then... There you go. You're probably going to be on board. So I'm surprised not many did their homework on him to find out that he was just a small bit actor billed as Zach Avery and not this big Hollywood mogul. But I guess he fooled enough of them to convince them enough they didn't bother checking any of his credentials or backgrounds or the legitimacy of these alleged contracts. Now, how long did he keep this up? Well, he kept it up for a pretty impressive seven years, actually, which is pretty impressive, really, because I would think long before that a lot of these investors would be wanting their money. Now, sometimes it does take a while to get something out there. This Howard Hawks, I've been talking to you about that for a long time, the Howard Hawks audiobook that I narrated for Cherry Hills Publishing, it should be out any time now. It actually is out for libraries and being distributed to them, but that's something I started the actual recording project at the end of last year. It took a while to record it because it's a long audio book and a lot of editing and things like that that the publisher's having to do and get ready for distribution. But it can take a while, but I would think before seven years you would kind of get a little impatient and wonder where your film is and when you're going to be getting your money back. 
So, in a typical classic Ponzi scheme, he took money from old invest, new investors to pay the oldens, and oftentimes would pay the investors back with a sometimes whopping 25 to 45%. That's enough to keep them in the game. And that is another classic technique of a Ponzi scheme, ridiculous amounts of investment returns early on, or at least the appearance of them. Madoff oftentimes had these uh, forged documents with these ridiculous returns and things that were not true. That is one way they do it, or in this case, if they do have the money that they've not spent on themselves, they can give a ridiculous amount to one of the early investors just to keep them interested and just to make it look legit. That's what he did here, folks. And that is a classic Ponzi scheme. Now, it's always good, like I said, you can keep that going, which seven years is a pretty good run for a Ponzi scheme. But as I always say, and I'm saying it again now, once they want their money and they're able to start demanding it and they get a little impatient, when you don't have new ones, the new ones have stopped coming in, that's when you run into a problem because you no longer have enough money to cover the ones that want their money and want their investment return, and your Ponzi scheme collapses. So the key to it is always new investors, and that's some of the similarities we've also covered when we talked about pyramid schemes a while back, and that's something that uh, you can check out. It's one of the episodes we did a few months back, and please check out all of our old episodes if you're kind of a fairly new listener here. Definitely encourage you to catch up on... Some of the ones we've had been at this a while and would like you to get a chance to hear them all. But we compared, there are a lot of similarities between pyramid schemes and actual uh, Ponzi schemes. Now, sometimes, like I said, the scheme collapses, then you get caught. Well, prosecutors, once they began to take a look at Horowitz, they discovered He was living in a $5.7 million Beverly Wood mansion. Very nice, expensive part of Hollywood. Now, prosecutors also noted not all of his victims were Hollywood executives. As I said a little bit ago, he ripped off a lot of people that he knew, people he even grew up with and even went to college with. A lot of people he ripped off were just everyday middle-class folks, and they said even some elderly folks that he had conned into investing into his supposed films were the ones that actually ended up losing their retirement savings, put everything they had into this dream that he sold them, a chance to to strike it rich. So he had no problem ripping off friends, just everyday middle-class folks, and even the elderly, and took their retirement savings to fund his little scam. In fact, there were over 250 investors that were impacted, many devastated financially, some even driven to bankruptcy. Now, prosecutors pointed out his first victims were college friends that he had from University of Indiana. Like I said, he knew these guys. Some of them, he grew up with them. Had no problem ripping them off to fund his lifestyle over a movie that was or movies that were never going to be launched or distributed. And when he pled guilty to a securities fraud, which is a common charge they get, that's basically illegal or unethical activities that are being done with an investor's money. When he pled guilty to that, he admitted that he never secured the right to any film. 
So let me back up again. He raised $650 million in his scheme and never secured the right to a single film to be distributed. Again, just a small-time little actor, had a few roles in some small things, somehow passed himself off as a big Hollywood mogul hotshot and raised all this money. The Forge contract certainly probably helped. If somebody thinks HBO or Netflix is on board, they're probably more likely to cough up their money. Nonetheless, he did admit he did not secure the rights to even a single film. Now, when he was sentenced last year, many came to the victim impact statement. I'm sure most of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, that is a chance where victims of the crimes get a chance to tell the judge, jury, whoever, whomever is going to be responsible for the sentencing, how this has negatively impacted their life. It can be a quite emotional time, especially when people's lives have really been damaged. And in this case, a lot of people gave statements, horrific stories of how his case devastated their lives and how his scam ruined them financially. As I said before, some people lost retirement savings because of him. Now, the judge noted a lot of excesses in his lifestyle. In fact, $600,000 for a Mercedes, $345,000 for a yacht and private jet, some private jet trips, $136,000 blown at some Vegas casinos, and $6.9 million in credit card payments toward American Express. As I said, too, he was living in a $5.7 million mansion. Now, you think about that for a little bit. That is a pretty sweet little setup to have. I'd say most people listening to this do not live in a $5.7 million mansion, but most, I would say, listening to this are not pulling off $650 million Ponzi schemes either. Now, prosecutors asked for the minimum of 20 years. And this is usually, I mean, when they ask for the high end like this, the defense will usually argue on the low end, and that's what they did here. They tried to say that he wasn't stable and well mentally, and he should be able to see his kids grow up. My experience that I've had, and I've spent a lot of years in the courtroom, I've worked for the sheriff's office and been in probation for a while, spent a lot of time in the court systems. And usually the sentence will be somewhere kind of in the middle that I've seen. Not always, but sometimes, I'd say a lot of times, the judge will do kind of somewhere in the middle or maybe slightly over the middle one way or other. But most of the time, neither side really gets exactly what they want, whether it's the prosecution or the defense. But this was a rare kind of case because the judge did give him the max of 20 years and also ordered him to pay $230 million in restitution, which is apparently what he still owed to his investors once this scheme collapsed. Now, if he's going to be locked up for 20 years, let's face reality, that, and they've even noted this, the, the courts and some people involved in the case, they think it's highly unlikely that he's going to repay all of this or even very much of it all or possibly even none of it. We've uh, talked several times about Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street. He was ordered to pay restitution and, as far as I know, has paid just a tiny amount of it. And that's all and not very much of anything else. And I don't know very many cases. We've covered a lot of cases on this podcast where people are ordered to pay restitution, but we've had very, very few success stories. Most of the time, it's a little bit. Sometimes they don't pay back any. And for some reasons, the courts have, have been neglected in and a little hesitant to revoke their parole and bring them back and resentence them because that's usually a condition of their parole 
that they have to pay back this restitution, and a lot of them don't. And it's kind of irritating to me. I see a lot of poor, indigent-type folks, and maybe not indigent, but that are hurting financially, and the courts will still stick it to them sometimes over fines and payments where people like this that are wealthy and have the money, of course, he really didn't. It wasn't really his. It was all from a scam. But nonetheless, $230 million he's going to be ordered to pay that I dare say very little or any of that probably will be paid back. He's still going to be a fairly young man when he gets out. I think he was only in his early 30s, if I recall right, when he was sentenced. So he's still going to be pretty young when he gets out. Who knows what his future will be, if he'll have any future in the entertainment industry or how he'll be able to make money. But it's probably going to be hard for him to come up with $230 million for him to pay back. Now, we don't know what assets maybe they seized or anything like that because, he's, as I mentioned, he had a mansion and Mercedes and yachts and jet trips and all kinds of other things and running high credit card bills and things like that. So who knows how much money of that actually is still out there that could be given back to these victims. But I dare say, sadly, just like always, very few of them will get that money back, as oftentimes, sadly, happens in white-collar crimes. Well, we thank you folks for tuning in to this one. And again, thank you to Adam for the idea for this podcast. We would like you to follow our Facebook page, the White Collar Crimes Podcast, to keep up on ideas. Please follow us on Spotify and Apple, wherever you happen to be listening to us, give us a five-star rating. Definitely appreciate that. As I said before, check out the Ryan-Horn website. Keep up on all the voiceover work, or if you want to hire me for that, be glad to do that for you. Email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com if you want to be a guest on this podcast or have an idea for this podcast. As I always say, too, check out your local shelter to adopt your next best friend. That's where they're at, and the joy you will get from that is immeasurable. Next week, I want to get back to a little educational-type podcast. We're going to show the difference in sentencing, how white-collar criminals get sentenced as opposed to street criminals, and some similarities but far more vast differences in how these two are sentenced and how the court systems often handle these. So you definitely want to check that out, and we will be back for that, and we're always glad... You've tuned in for this one, and please tune in again next week. We will have that next one out. And as I always say, look out for your victims, your ones that are out there, your friends, your family, especially your elderly, because those are the ones that are often targeted for these type of crimes. Again, thank you to the Weekend Angler. Glad to have you aboard as a sponsor. Please check out their YouTube page, and please check us out again next week because we will be back here and look forward to seeing you. God bless and take care, everybody.